This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Forever. Comic books, comic time, writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's red, and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning or winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh-huh, it's comic book commentary. Hello, I'm John Allison. I'm the writer and very occasional artist of Giant Days, and I'm going to talk about Giant Days issue 51 from Boombox. Um, It's an unusual issue in the run, certainly out of step thematically perhaps with a lot of the run, which is quite a, it's a fun book, it's a kind of knockabout sitcom, whereas this is a slightly heavier issue, and I'll talk a bit about why I decided to do this now, and how I feel about heavy issues in funny comics because this is borderline a very special issue so cover it's McGraw uh, the boyfriend of Susan Ptolemy he's standing in the rain it's a very striking cover Um, the covers of Giant Days were set by Lisa Trayman the style was kind of quite plain backgrounds single character often uh they're unusual, I think, on the stands. I think they stand out on the stands as, as looking like a very different kind of book. And this is a very striking cover. This is perhaps the most downbeat cover of the run as well. It's not even cartoonishly kind of sad. It's just heavy. It's great. It's a great cover. It's very striking. I think Max Sarin, who's the artist on Giant Days, is uh, among the best artists working in comics today and has grown on the book enormously. They were good when they started. Now, I think, genuinely a star artist, a hot artist in the original sense of the word. So, credits page, created and written by John Allison. That's me. Art by Max Sarin, Max Pencils and Inks. Colours by Whitney Koger, who is a colourist who I had not heard of before working on Giant Days, but who has coloured Lisa, Max... Uh, Julia when she filled in Julia Madrigal and myself with a plum. It always looks like Giant Days if Whitney is colouring it which is quite the credit to her. Letters by Jim Campbell who is the only person who's worked on every issue besides myself I think and uh, yeah so let's get going page one. Esther emerges into a crowd of her fellow students on her course, they just look at her with disgust because Esther is an ebullient big personality, but I I like the idea that people on her course don't like her very much, uh, that they think she's a bit of a pain, but she doesn't really notice, she doesn't care, you know, she just thinks of them as kind of rubes and hayseeds, and she just does her own thing. I can't imagine she is part of their social group at all, she's kind of a fringe figure. That's something that all the Giant Days principals have in common. They have quite a small friendship group and they've really found each other, but I don't think they fit in perfectly with university life at all. So page one also has C issue 43, exclamation mark. You don't often see that in comics nowadays, a classic C issue 43. You never see it in indie comic books because they don't run for this long anymore. And callbacks like this are seldom necessary. So it's, uh, I thought the first time I've done this, I think, a uh, C issue, whatever. And uh, it's more a kind of triumphant, I got this far into the run more than anything else. Oh, Esther says, friends in quotes. Hello, friends. Huge news. The friends is in quotes because they aren't her friends. 
and uh, she just capers about. Brilliant uh, posing here by Max in the second panel. And she's won the Peters and Lee essay prize. I think Peters and Lee are perhaps a, a light musical act, something like that. I'm going to look it up. Hold on. Yes, Peters and Lee are a folk duo from the 1970s. I love archaic constructions and naming things after pieces of ephemera that most people reading the book will never have heard of. I just like the idea that these phrases that I remember, half remember from my childhood, go into the brains of teenagers and others and people from countries who don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Esther prances a lot on the first page. A lot of prancing in this issue. So, Esther has won the Peters and Lee essay prize, which she entered in issue 43. Page two. The joy is over. Susan Ptolemy returns home. Um, in the previous issue, issue 50, issue 50 was big celebration. It was the cricket issue, an issue about cricket, again, ephemera that most people reading the book would have no idea about and indeed would not wish to care about. I did a whole issue about it. Susan returns home. But at the end of issue 50, McGraw, Susan's boyfriend's father, died, um, which was a bit of a punch after a fun issue. Um, I sort of knew this was going to happen from the very early stages of the comic. I knew that somebody's parent would die, but I wasn't sure whose parent it would be. But having run this long, it was possible to kind of find the point of maximum impact where it would work. And I wanted to do an issue not so much about the grief of the person who'd lost the parent, because at this age, I like to think, put kind of relevant experiences in giant days and... For most people at university, are not going to lose a parent. So it's more likely, but I think everybody knows somebody who loses somebody close to them at university. And when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you do not have the weapons to kind of be appropriate with people. I think in a lot of cases, you just don't know how to deal with somebody who's grieving. So I kind of wanted to do an issue about how do you negotiate other people's grieving when you're at university. And I thought that was something I could do within the context of the issue without making it a kind of very special issue about death because I haven't lost a parent. So it's very difficult for me to really tap the depths of grief that that would, uh, that would kind of require. But I thought I can remember being quite insensitive to embarrassingly so insensitive to death. Um, once at university and the reaction that I got was exactly what I deserved and so um, I wanted to kind of channel that experience and kind of make it easier for other people. So Susan returns home, her house, as in many situations when one has had to leave impromptu, you return to life as it was, slightly decayed. There's the remnants of issue 50, the cricket outfits on the ground. This is Max's idea, I think. I'm just going to consult with the script because I have the script open. Bit of radio magic here. If you hear a click, that's me clicking the mouse to have a look at a page. So page two, what have I put? Susan stands in the empty flat. She has a small suitcase, having just returned from McGraw's father's funeral alone. The flat is as they left it a week or so ago. We assume that McGraw went straight home on the day of the cricket match after hearing his dad had died and Susan went with him. So Max has done a lot with that on these pages. Um, you can absolutely see everything that I wrote there just laid out perfectly. The plants are dead on this page, you know, it's a life interrupted, if you like. There's a phrase in here I like. Susan calls the plants, you poor sad sods. And then Jim Campbell has done a little bit of art on this page as well. The the little icons for the uh, instant messaging. Jim's drawn those, which is a sign of a man really going the extra yard. I'm very wary of putting cell phone constructions in comics. I think there's nothing more embarrassing in a lot of cases than um, cell phone bits, paraphernalia and furniture on the screen. I mean, I think Sherlock is a good example of a program that I just cringe watching. I can't bear it. So I try to be very, very careful not to put too much of it, although obviously students are messaging 
all the time, but I try to do as little of it as possible. Uh, but when we do do it, Jim lifts it up a notch, and uh, as he's done here. But as you can see, even though Susan gets home miserable, life does go on for her, although it's kind of stopped from McGraw. And even by the end of that first page, she's happy again, because the nature of helping someone out with their grief, your life hasn't ended in a way. It's kind of a, a job you have to work at. Next page, page three, Esther and Susan have met at Starbucks. It's always Starbucks, just the local coffee house that burns the beans the least. And uh, let's have a look. Susan's bereft. How's, how's the funeral? How's McGraw? Says Esther. And Esther really cares. The, the, the principle of giant is, is that the characters all care about each other. You know, they're, they're like a family. They really rely on each other. And when they're separated, they deteriorate. And when they come back together, they, they kind of recover a little bit. And uh, poor Susan, she can so kind of lean on Esther. She's got the comfort to just tell her everything. But she can't really do She doesn't exactly know what to do with uh, McGraw's grief. She says, I don't know, it was a good send-off, right? You know, the sort of thing that people say, the kind of cliches that people say that don't mean anything. But yeah, and then again, you'll see there's loads of great background work, background characters. In Giant Days, I design most of the characters who get more than one line of dialogue who will recur. But then Max fills in everything. She's designed so many characters for the backgrounds. She's really good on things that I might slip up on, say, really good on diversity, really good on showing people with disabilities in the background sometimes. And, um, you know, in the end, I'm not as good at that. And I really, it gives me a little poke in the ribs, even when I'm drawing things myself to remember to get those things in when Max gets them in. Max's panelling is uh, interesting as well. Max will do lots of bleeds, um, use them to great effect, or and also panels where she knocks out the white background and kind of isolates things for effect. And uh, there's a good example of this in the uh, fourth panel on the page where the background characters kind of melt away and then Whitney's done a great gradient in it as well. And it's an unusual effect and something I don't think we've seen in the comic before. So there's a lot of emotional work as well. Again, Max, probably the best in the business at kind of emotional back and forth. Certainly something that's unusual in American comics. Well, Max is Finnish and I'm British, so we kind of both bring something different to the table. Right, page four. One of my better efforts in this issue, we find out what Esther's um, what Esther's essay was about that she won the prize for. It's a brief social history of pubic hair, and she's making a kind of uh, a kind of yonic shape with her hands, like a little merkin, a little imaginary merkin. And Susan loves this. Esther's always there to lift people's mood. She doesn't really care for the most part, what people think, or rather she thinks she's right most of the time. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, always certain. Then Daisy arrives, and uh, each of the uh, Junk Days ladies brings a different energy, and Daisy's kind of pastel shades. You know, she's kind of soothing. She's usually soothing when she's in the panel. When Daisy goes wrong, that's usually a sign that things are going really, really wrong. And she always goes wrong worse than any other character, which we'll see on the next page. Esther has... The number of skulls on Esther's clothes have increased. Esther's now surrounded by skulls constantly. And this is in... As the, as the series has gone on, Max has just thrown more and more skulls and cobwebs at Esther. To the extent that her laptop has a big skull on it. She's got cobwebs on her top. And, uh... Yeah, it's a vibe, you know. It's what it's what uh, Esther's going for. I I I like it. it even on previous issues, her little protege Charlotte Groat has got a lot of skulls on her, which are kind of it's kind of bled into her look as well. So Esther has got a job interview, or she wants a job interview. Spoiler there, if you haven't got to the end of the issue yet, at a bank. So that's what this page deals with. She doesn't really care. She just wants to get a job. Esther's just kind of trying to get through university and do everything she's meant to do. But even though she kind of doesn't feel like 
it reflects who she is. So she applies for this job, sends the email, ah, who cares? Perfect. Right. But there are no page numbers in Giant Days, so I think this is, and I can never remember, it's page five. Odd numbers on the right, John. Let's not forget. Okay. Let's have a look. Page five. What thrills? Now, my instructions for Max tend to be emotional instructions on the panel, as much as directions of a very simple directions of what to draw, but because Giant Days is a sitcom book and it's emotionally driven, I try to write what the emotions are for each panel, which is something you probably didn't get with a Frank Miller script. So let's have a look. Panel one. Esther is still concerned. Susan winces and looks at the table. There's a lot of use of the word concerned. They're often concerned about each other and wincing. I don't think wincing is something that happens in, in enough comics, but there's a lot of wincing in Giant Days because, you know, that's I think most of us go through life swallowing something hard and jagged every 10 minutes or so. So Esther asks, when you say McGraw is terrible, how terrible? Is there anything we can do for him? Oh, mercy, I wish his ramrod, ramrod spine of iron never broke. He never cried, never wobbled, never did anything but try to help. So Susan, in a sense, seems to be taking it worse than McGraw. McGraw has just buried all his emotions. Super healthy. Just bury those emotions. But some great grieving, uh, great grieving aunts, I think, in the second panel. It's a... Uh, Pretty brilliant. He's there with his tiny box of Kleenex. And Esther's, well, that's good. Bad. Daisy, Daisy, who has experience of grief, Daisy, who lost her parents when she was very young, too young to really understand, is uh, very much the kind of emollient here. Everyone grieves in their own way. Susan says, I don't think he's grieving at all. I've been swimming in this for days. I'd like to think about something else until he gets back, because ultimately it is hard work and it's not her grief. And she does kind of need an escape from it. You know, she feels guilty about this. And immediately she turns on Daisy. And as I say, when things go wrong for Daisy, Daisy just flips. She likes the equilibrium. And as soon as you disturb her equilibrium, things start going wacky. So immediately she just spits her drink out. Then she's on her feet in high dudgeon. And in the final panel of the page, she shoves a muffin straight in Susan's mouth, which is what I would describe as heightened reality, because if you were to shove a muffin into your friend's mouth, I, I suspect they would not be your friend for very long. But again, some great high energy cartooning there. But yeah, great background characters on these pages in the cafe. There's uh, there's something for all these people to do if I uh, if I chose to take them away. You know, Max does a great mixture of facial expressions, but also like facial features. There's very little cookie cutter work with, with Max. None, effectively. You know, everybody looks, even within the kind of constraints of, of the Saren style, they're very much their own person. All right. Page six. So, Susan's flat with the classic key poster, McGraw's original key poster, which has appeared since the earliest issues on the wall. Daisy loves tidying up, much like myself. There's nothing quite like a bit of tidying up. Oh, also uh, Susan's skeleton, which appeared in the very first self-published issue of Giant Days, even before the boom run, a character that has appeared many, many times. Daisy says, that's why my maxim is don't put it down, put it away, which is actually my uh, maternal grandmother's catchphrase. And I like having that in there. That's in there for posterity now. That's one for my mum, really, more than anything else. And Susan produces some mini Kievs. Mini Kievs were something I ate when I was a student. It's a tiny chicken Kiev uh, with... Um, a kind of ball of, I would imagine, processed chicken with some garlic butter inside and then some very low-quality crumb on the outside. Stick them in the oven, seven of those. A great meal, probably devoid of anything bar empty calories, but there you go. So Daisy's rushing off to do her mentoring. Daisy, in the third year of the series, uh, took a job as a kind of residential advisor. The job characters who fascinated me at university I'd never really you don't even think about them, they're a kind of ersatz adult when you're in a 
a dorm or hall of residence in the first year, but I, we barely saw ours. You know, I didn't have any reason to call upon them, so I had to do some research, which is always painful, to find out what they actually do and what their life is like. And it's harder than you think that they have a lot of extra work to do to get that kind of sweet, discounted or free spot in the dorms. You know, there's a that's a real job of work. But there's much discussion on this page in the previous one of Daisy's, why Daisy isn't kissing any faces. Daisy had a, a long arc with a tempestuous relationship with a German called Ingrid. And I like the idea that she's not really too keen to date again. That she, this kind of burned her a little bit. But I also feel like it's a bit cruel to Daisy for her not to get any love issue after issue. So by this point, issue 51, I was certainly thinking it's probably time for her to, if not get back in the game, certainly she should certainly be allowed to kiss her face. So page seven, Susan flumps down. Use of the word sound effect flump, always good. Flump. Uh, Jim's great at sound effects. and I'm very fond of sound effects. There have been points where I've overused them because I love a sound effect. I do a sound effect for something that wasn't a sound, but I've kind of restrained that a little bit in recent years. So McGraw returns, very much unchanged from his normal self. He's strictly business. He's quite tamped down. You very rarely see McGraw cut loose. The mini Kievs return, but uh, despite the fact that he seems himself... McGraw and Susan have a lovely relationship, but instead he retreats almost immediately. He's distant. Even though he's present, he's distant. And uh, poor Susan's just sitting there in the last panel, wordless panel. Very rare I do a wordless panel, or it certainly used to be. Um, but I think there's, there's room for it. There's room for it. And uh, yeah, she just feels nothingy. Only I only do a wordless panel when there is genuinely an absence of thought. Right. I can't remember which page this is again. I should really have written the numbers on the pages, shouldn't I? I know it's an even number. Is it page eight? Yes, page eight. I have a very poor memory for figures. A few days later. So Susan and Daisy head down the street. Uh, and these are the streets where I went. I lived and when I went to university in Sheffield and uh, often I'll give very specific references for streets because I just trace through the routes that I walked at the time and uh, the interpretation is obviously colour-wise very different Sheffield Northern City is quite grey whereas Whitney has quite a colourful style but often I'll see the edge of a building or the shape of a window and uh, it's, it's a, there's a lovely familiarity about it it's uh, having done a book for all these years about where i went to university i've had to navigate the city on google street view so many times to find appropriate references for things and it's helped me to kind of keep in touch with the place which obviously has changed enormously since i left in 1998 but i still feel present there and it's funny when i go back occasionally to walk around the streets and uh, experience places that I'm still in touch with, even though I'm kind of long gone as a resident because of my many laps on Street View. So here we talk about Susan's family, Daisy says. Well, they're talking about uh, the cavalcade of death, which was when Susan's parents' parents died. I remember my, my parents lost their parents when I was very young. For the most part, I, I, I kind of went right through into my mid-30s with one grandparent, having lost most of them by 1983. So I, I had very little experience of death, and kind of Susan reflects that there. But when you come to be an adult and you reach the age when your parents' parents died, I think you think about it in a very different way, and all of a sudden it becomes much, much realer. Um, and I talk a little bit about Susan's large family. I can't imagine how parents deal with grief when they have, you know, a big family of kids to look after. I don't know how they ever process it. And as Susan says, they didn't have time to deal with it in a healthy way. 
Susan says, Death of the Ptolemies was like Game of Thrones, a moment of reflection, then back to swinging the old sword. And uh, I often think about death in popular culture. It's just glazed over. They just run straight past it. You know, you allied time. I remember the death of Will Gardner on The Good Wife. This was this kind of a epochal moment. You know, this was this important character who was all of a sudden, you know, the centre of the show and was all of a sudden just dead. And the grief obviously should have lasted perhaps years for uh, Alicia Florek. And said, I think the death was pretty much dealt with in one episode and then we rolled on. And um, Buffy was much the same, you know. Buffy has maybe the best death episode, most realistic death episode of, of any episode when Buffy's mother died. But still, we kind of roll past it very quickly. Whereas, you know, grief is something that's real and present almost forever for some people, you know. It changes, but it's it's always there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so I tried to do as much reading as I could around grief and different people's experiences and talk to people before I wrote this issue because I wanted it to have some real meat in it. I couldn't make this stuff up. So Daisy said, it all just came out in fantasies that one day they'd come around the corner. It was all a big mistake. The idea that it was all a dream and people whose parents died when they were young, they would, you know, they had the kind of, breadth of imagination to, to try and pretend it away uh, for a little while. You know, they wouldn't deal with it the same way as people who were older. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit, although to what benefit, I don't know. And poor Susan, she's really struggling. I don't even have anything good to say to you about that. Yeah, so she's just navigating it. Page nine. And then poor Daisy. Daisy tries to talk to McGraw about his parents, but nobody's grief is the same, and she doesn't do too well. She says it was a real personal low point. And then, yes, McGraw, Paul McGraw, in issue 50, he talks to his father at the end of the issue, and he's just, it was a typical elderly parental request, because McGraw's dad was old as well. He was in kind of, probably in his 70s, I would think. And it's just a kind of request to help help him sort out his printer. But when you can't see the printer and you can't see the computer screen, you just tend to be a bit short because ultimately none of us is uh, that good at giving tech support in the dark with our hands tied behind our back. And so he says, the last thing I ever said to him was use a USB cable instead. The most banal thing imaginable. And then poor Daisy, she just goes in too hard. Can you... Can you ever go to PC world again? I mean, computers are an important part of our world. That's that's so awful. She just can't. I think she's kind of processing it through the lens of her own grief. But again, great artwork here. Max does great weeping. Really, really great pathetic weeping. And again, McGraw's kind of the shoulder to lean on here. Daisy, I suppose there's always wireless connections. They're increasingly common, but, um, and yeah, she's, she can't, she's done a terrible job of this. She's really failed, which is probably the reason that she now marches into the kitchen and says, you find him. I'm going to cook you both some meals. She knows how she can help and how she can't help. And she's pretty much proved conclusively that she can't help. Right, page 10. So, a huge pile of Tupperware. Again, these are lovely scenes, lovely kitchen scenes. I feel terrible um, in Giant Days repeatedly asking for the same rooms to be drawn. Draw the kitchen again. Draw them around a table. I always try to have as few scenes around a table as possible because they're horrible to draw, really horrible. The angles are awful and it creates all kinds of problems. If you break the order of how people talk when they're stuck behind a table, there's no escape from it. 
So I always try to write a bit of physical comedy, if I can, and a flashback is usually a good way to do that. So here in the fourth panel, we have McGraw climbing out a window, which gives us a chance to do something visual and physical. And Max, again, Max's great skill at both dynamic work and emotional work. So the flashback, uh, you really get a sense of McGraw's kind of musculature. He's kind of a strong guy. And the way he's pulling himself up out of the window is tremendous. Uh, I, I always try and give Max stuff to do, stuff to do that isn't part of the general thrust of the issue, just because the richness we can get out of that, both making it and writing it, it's important to remember to do different things. And the last panel on this page, though, I mean, it's a great panel. Susan is just, she just can't take it anymore. She's in blackness. She's got a kind of purple halo, thanks to Whitney. She's sucking on a fork. Let me have a look what I've written for this panel, because this is great, and I don't think I gave it anything like this in the script. I just wrote, closer in on Susan, whose face is totally blank as she eats, and we get so much out of it. Her pupils are dots. She's got that kind of, like, that sucking lip. Yeah, it's great. It's a great panel. Really, really strong work. Reminds me a little bit of um, Meredith Gran. But yeah, what does Susan say? Please let some sort of emotional dam break soon, because this level of personal sensitivity is well outside my operating parameters. Okay, page 11, halfway through the issue. God, I've been talking a long time. Maybe listen to this on double speed. Uh, McGraw is doing his washing again. You know, like these are functional things, the things you have to learn to draw when you're doing a comic. And because I did this kind of comic for so long, I had to draw washing up all the time. Washing up, kettles being turned on. So I put it in a script and it's not something that every artist has in their arsenal. But if they work with me, they're probably going to be forced to draw, to draw some washing up at some point. I think I, it was Louise Simonson. She was talking about maybe Power Pack or perhaps X-Men versus Power Pack or something like that. Some kind of team up. And uh, she was working with John Bogdanov, who's better known for Superman. She said that John was great at drawing like silver tea services and the things that would be in family homes. And I remember that being a real you know, kind of touchstone that, yeah, you should be able to render these things and make them feel real because they're the things that make the world feel real that you're writing about. And uh, again, Max is very good at those sorts of things. So poor Susan, left on her own. McGraw's gone to bed at half past eight. Again, not unusual for somebody who's as low as McGraw is at this point, although he doesn't seem to show it any other way. Susan's left drawing triangles on a piece of paper while watching Guy Fieri on the Food Network, which is listlessness at its most listless, I think. And then uh, Esther buzzes in and says let me in a cat with a suspiciously human face is looking at me uh, there's a cat who sits in my garden who has the kind of piebald face which has created the kind of shading of a human face and when seen from a distance it just looks like a very peculiar human face looking at you down the garden this cat likes to stare straight in as well pretty old cat so I'm trying to enjoy it while it lasts Esther emerges I've got a bit of news this is a phrase I use all the time. It's a phrase that we used to joke about at work, that my friend's wife would would tell him when he got home, I've got a bit of news, and it meant that she was pregnant. I've got a bit of news. I'm pregnant. She wasn't, but we used to say this every day. It is an in-joke that I once again, I have placed an issue. I love Esther in this first panel. That's a crazy drawing. Wonderful. Esther seems to have a crucifix round her neck in this issue. Esther is not religious. I'm not sure why she's got a crucifix, but you know what? I'm willing to roll with it. I hadn't even spotted that until this point. Yes, and in panel two, yes, I've got a bit of news. The giant those ladies do understand it the same way I do. Susan's response immediately is, you're pregnant. New life to bring cheer to sad times. Grats. And in panel three, uh, Susan says, I assume Dean Thompson is the father. Dean Thompson being one of Esther's housemates. He's a troubling character who, he's a, a kind of, the best way to describe him. You can't really tell how old he is. Uh, he's always dressed like a middle-aged man. 
yet when you very occasionally see his body, because Max is very good at drawing people who are buff, Dean Thompson is suddenly very buff. And there is one episode where I think we should understand that he is a life model, although he always does it wearing a kind of plague doctor mask, so you can never tell that it's him. But uh, yes, Dean Thompson. But Dean Thompson and Nesta have no loving relationship whatsoever. This is another cruel jibe by Susan, who's rather sharp. But Esther has, rested a, has rented a big cottage in the Peak District for the weekend. The Peak District is the national park just outside Sheffield. And uh, stars fly. I like a star myself. And uh, Max has gone full, full on stars here. We can get wood, McGraw away from wood chip wallpaper, brown carpet and low ceilings, which are the three things I associate with uh, rented accommodation. Although wood chip wallpaper, probably now a little out of date. Now you just get a beige wall. Beige, beige, beige. Next page. Train. It's a train. Let me have this is page 13. There's a train. It's a pacer. The classic coach on wheels. The trains that were meant to be retired 20 years ago that are still running in the north of England. Who knows why? Probably something to do with money. Uh, they run on diesel. Don't know why. Something to do with money. Uh, but it's been coloured appropriately for the region. It's 100% authentic. I'm no railway buff, but I have been on a lot of trains because I didn't learn to drive until I was in my mid-twenties. So public transport, that was my, that was my uh, jab. And so uh, my time on public transport informs my transit inclusions in comics. So on the train, enter Nina and Ed Gemmel. Ed Gemmel, who's been present again since the first self-published issue. And Nina, his girlfriend, who's Australian. Nina lends the outsider's perspective when necessary, and it's helpful here. So she says, is this train kind of a special vintage thing? It's like a bus that had a bad divorce. And Ed's, no, it's it's just normal for the North. And then she asks, what can you tell us about the village of Bamford, S? I selected it on the basis of being half of the name of Maria Bamford, which is a very Esther reason to do it, the American comedian. Maria Bamford, of course. Just the sort of thing that Esther would enjoy. And then when they arrive, uh, Nina asks again, so is this sort of a special vintage railway station, seeing as how all it is is two bus shelters next to the train track? And Ed says, I remind you that you are a guest in our country. I haven't got a lot to say about that. I think the interaction says everything. Our railway system can seem a little hopeless in some parts of the country. And then lovely page, bit of a breather. Again, there's some things in this issue that are totally different um, to most of the issues. I tried to take out some of, a lot of the franticness and give some little pauses for thought, which Usually, a lot of the issues are kind of slam-bang, you know, it's joke, 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 joke. And, you know, it was my editor, Jasmine Amiri, who uh, kind of encouraged me to get more emotional beats into my comics, which I, I try to remember at all times, because when you're kind of cr cramming and shoehorning things in, emotional beats are the first thing to go, you know? You just... You know, if you're trying to write funnies, 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 and I'm always trying to do that. Get as many jokes as possible, value for money. Sometimes you do have to slow down a little bit, and it's better just to knock out what you were doing and, and take a breath, because you can have too many jokes. You can overload something. So they arrive at the rented house. And then there's a nice little visual joke here. I think this was I think this was one of mine, but you know, might not have been. Might have been Max. Let's have a look. Page fourteen. Close up of a very bright floral pattern fabric. This is a pattern of Esther's crazy floral romper suit on the next page. Yeah, so that was one of mine. But then this, yes, Esther's floral romper suit, which actually sets up the next issue where she talks about uh where she got it from. But she says, I just think it's important that my wardrobe doesn't reflect the infinite this weekend. Out of respect. So uh, Esther, doing her best, but she can't really turn off her personality. She's a caring person. But I think that's majestically tone deaf, Esther. 
So there's a little note here. Um, Esther says, come Nina, let's investigate the glassware. For 48 hours, this house is ours. I, and I think originally it said stemware, but Nina uh, has quit drinking. So this was changed. And rightly so. Because I don't think Esther, the person who took Nina to her first uh, therapy or counselling session, would probably be encouraging her to tuck into the wine. And Ed says, I think the cognitive dissonance of a floral print Esther is actively distressing. And it is unusual because her colouring is so pale to see her in bright colours. It is quite good. It works very well. Again, another nice piece of work by Whitney there. Just choosing colours that really Esther wouldn't wear because they kind of don't suit her. It makes the joke work really well. And McGraw's still cheerful. He still hasn't cracked. So next page is page uh, 16. My counting is extremely suspect. So yes, first mention of uh, Esther's friend Shelley, who's a character from Scary Go Round, my old comic. Um, Shelley was kind of Esther's mentor, although mentor is probably the wrong word. She was just an adult who uh, she could lean on when she wasn't getting on too well with anybody else. Shelley isn't the most... She's a responsible person, but she makes a lot of bad decisions. But Shelley, I always thought of as the kind of... She does look like a hair dye box. So in the last panel, there she is floating perfect. This is the first manifestation, I think, the first Max Sarin Shelley Winters. She has appeared in uh, one of the holiday specials before. This is the first time Max has drawn her. And to be honest, I would not be lying if I said that I put things in just to see what they'll look like when Max draws them. Um, because they come out better than I draw them. So, and again, that's a very good Shelley. Yes, a career woman from the 1990s. I like the idea of the 1990s as a kind of marker of modernity, even though obviously the 1990s are now nearly 30 years ago. There's a lot of films where they say it's the 1990s, get used to it. Um, there, there are dozens of them from the 1990s where they say it's the 1990s, get used to it. And so this has entered the group's parlance. There are a lot of in-jokes that they understand. And they're my in-jokes, obviously. But it becomes ever more ridiculous that the 1990s are modern. Yes, I think you'd like Shelley, Ed. I think all men do. So next page, Esther searching for a bar of Wi-Fi again. More great visual humour from Max here. It's a good Esther in this issue. It's fascinating to watch the characters grow throughout Max's run because they change. 50 issues is a really long time for an artist to be working on something. And uh, it's a real thrill to actually plot the progress of the, sta of the Sarin style especially once Max starts inking himself in issue 36 or 37, because all of a sudden it, it just, again, it's every time it's a step up. It's a step up. It's very exciting to read. But again, McGraw's still serene. He's doing his best. I feel very sorry for him in this issue. He's someone who... Uh, holds himself to a very high standard and, and decaying into grief isn't uh, really up to that standard. I guess on this page as well, Esther remarks about the E, which I think is edge network. You only, the, the phone signal that means you ain't going to be getting any uh, web pages or sending out iPhone text that day. So page 18, the page where McGraw finally cracks. Nina comes in to play a game of checkers with him, and or drafts as we call it in the UK and most other countries. I think it's called drafts. And McGraw just breaks. He breaks just at the sight of the uh, of the of the draft board. And my feeling was that perhaps this was a game he and his dad played together, and he hadn't thought about it. He hadn't thought about the things they did together in that way. And all of a sudden, he just comes apart. Because he knows he is never going to play that with his dad again. And finally we get a release. And Susan's there for him. She's been waiting for this to happen. This is kind of... she's You know, she hasn't known what to do throughout the whole issue. 
but this is the point where he really needs her and she's there that second and it's kind of testimony to their relationship um Nina's had a problem, as I say, she's kind of the character who had like a drink problem in earlier issues. She's a long way from home, she's a long way from her family, and I think in some way she kind of understands instinctively his trouble. She kind of sees something here, she can kind of unpick it in a way that the others can't. But she's, you know, she's a broad character, but she's also kind of emotionally wise in a way that the other characters aren't, you know, they're still close to home, whereas she's had the sort of person who has the bravery to travel overseas, come a really long way, and make a huge life change in coming to the UK. You know, she's come across half the world, she's left everybody behind. And, uh, you know, she's got a little something that maybe the others have yet to develop. So, next page. Susan and McGraw in the woods. I love these colours. It's, be- it's really beautiful work again. Really beautiful. And I love the very simple trees, the simple bark. Get, just doing that with just like a few lines. Just a very few lines. And, it, you know, it, a great artist can do everything in a few lines. You know, I, I'm, I'm really against the overlading of pages with detail. I think it, it's unnecessary and it's kind of anti-comics in a way. Comics are things that should be easy to read, easy to parse. You know, and the best creators can can do it with very little and not to say that i don't think artists who use a lot of detail don't have an incredible skill but it's a communicative art form and simplicity is obviously the best way in a lot of cases to communicate things but again then the next panel three rather mcgraw just shaking and those broken lines around him just kind of hanging off rough lines works really well and this yeah it's all about trying to be good he was worried his dad would die his whole life. I was thinking of my friends who had old parents. There was always one or two kids at school whose parents said, you know, perhaps it was from a second marriage or they hadn't got started until late on and they'd come in on parents' evening and they would seem like, you know, you know, look like an old man, the old dad. The old dad was a real phenomenon. You know, a different kind of figure from a different generation. And those guys weren't going to last forever. In a lot of cases, you know, these weren't the dads who were playing football with their kids. It was a different kind of relationship. The kids of older parents tended to have a different, slightly more sophisticated worldview in a lot of cases. And uh, it's something I thought about a lot. So, again, when McGraw's dad did appear a few issues ago, I knew he was going to be an old dad. I didn't create him just to die. But I created him just to die. I, I did actually create him just to die. But yeah, lovely, lovely little sequence of pages. Say, so there's, there's, the character designs that I did were originally simple, but Max injects so much into them. That first panel on the next page, on page twenty. You know, there's a lot more in the design there than I ever put there that I could ever have imagined would have been in there. Max can take a cartoony design, inject extra detail at that point, and put stuff in there that I, you know, I if I tried to do that to a drawing, I'd just overdress it. Whereas there, it's really powerful. That one panel, that little close-up panel, is a bit like a one of those old Ren and Stimpy overpainted, gross-out panels. All of a sudden, there's a sudden injection of of detail works really well. Right. So, yes. And then we we finish on a joke. Unfortunately, while we were having our little little test-a-tet, a bird has made toilet right down your back. I like the phrase making toilet. I love an archaic phrase, as I say. So when they return, Esther is prancing once more, crying la... Um, La is a phrase that my friend Joe List once drew a picture of the Hulk and the Hulk was saying La and I think you know who's saying Hulk La and I've used it many times over but that is one of one of Joe's inventions yes so sorry I hope I wasn't prancing inappropriately but McGraw is already his mood is lifted now I'm not sure if it's a little bit put on. It seems again, he seems like he's trying really hard in these panels to the point where maybe he's smiling a little harder than he wants to. 
you know, he's he's a, he is broken still. But he says, you're a good airguester to Groot. I very much want you to prance, prance about this. I don't know what's going on in my head from one minute to the next, but I think life has to get bigger for death to seem smaller. Now, this is perhaps heavier handed than I would have been if I'd had more pages at this point, but I wanted to make, in the end, McGraw is kind of the responsible character and he's the one they lean on. In a way, he wants them still to lean on him. But for all the pain that he feels, he still wants them to kind of come out of this having learned something. He's always delivering little nuggets right from the earliest issues. So, final page, an epilogue. Every issue has an epilogue. I write epilogue on the script. And uh, yes, they're at the station. Esther has got her job interview and she's off to London for issue 52. There's a reference here to the railway children waving, waving handkerchiefs. Actually, didn't the railway children wave their bloomers? I think they did. I think I did a joke about that in Bad Machinery as well. In any case, another anachronism. I love an anachronism. Good luck, says Daisy, but she doesn't look that happy. I think she's either unhappy because Esther probably isn't going to, you know, be... A, obviously, they're all coming to the end of university, so she knows she's not going to be around, but she's not sure that the job that Esther's going for is exactly the right sort of job for a free spirit like that. And Susan says, there she goes, Daisy, our little gothy, into the machine. And, uh, yes, yeah, so trouble ahead in issue 52 as Esther heads for London. And that's it. So thank you for listening. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.